Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody, and uh, happy Halloween. I thought I would... How many people here for the first time tonight? Welcome, 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 everybody. Welcome anybody that's joining us on Zoom for the first time. Welcome back, everyone else. I thought I would go with a little themed uh, Halloween Dharma class, Dharma talk, and uh, go with death and serial killers as the topic tonight. Um, I do like to begin by, uh, in, in the service of trying to have Against the Stream be a place not just to practice meditation, but also to develop community. Community is such a central part of the Buddha's teachings, the encouragement to find like-minded people to associate with, to, to connect and support each other. And, and um, we take refuge in the Sangha, Sangha being the Buddhist word for community. And so I like to begin by uh, some kind of short icebreaker conversation um, so that you talk to people and, and invite you to, at home, I, I put them in, um, I put you in uh, these breakout groups, which is just random and they, you know, get stuck with three or four people and they talk to each other. Here you get to choose, but I, I encourage you to choose people you don't know so well. Don't just talk to your friend that you're here with so that you actually meet somebody in the room and have a short conversation with people that you don't already know uh, as an opportunity to start connecting with, with people here in the community. So the topic is, um, how do you feel about death? Uh, you know, what do you think? How do you feel about death? Your death, other people's death, the inevitable, you know, aging, sickness, decay of the human body, you know, the reality of like, this is, this is temporary and it's going to rot in the ground or not in the ground, or uh, we're going to do a corpse meditation. So central part of the Buddha's teaching tonight, reflecting on death, meditating on death. Um, how do you feel about death? How about, you know, do you, do, are you, you know, how, how terrified of it are you? Um, you know, we're going to meditate on like, this is a skeleton covered in flesh and uh, it's impermanent and how identified we are with our life and our body and how attached will create a lot of suffering in our lives if we're too attached to existing. And, um, and you know, other people's death, you know, grief being an a integral part of our human experience, grieving the loss. How many friends have died, relatives have died. Um, you know, saw on Instagram that a, a friend, you know, kind of associate person that I know used to come be part of the Sangha died this week. And it's just like, you know, constant in my life, it's felt like a pretty constant um, experience of loss, you know, of, of people that I know and care about dying. And, you know, it's sort of what it's like here in, in life for most of us. So how do you feel about death? To find some people that you don't know and talk about your deepest, uh, most intimate uh, fears. <laughs> Perhaps one of the most 
central teachings in Buddhism is the truth of impermanence and uh, becoming aware of how much experience that we create ourselves is about uh, resisting or denying or uh, clinging in the midst of impermanence. And so we, we start to wake up, mindfulness shows us, present time awareness shows us everything's constantly changing. Every thought that arises passes, every sensation that arises passes, every emotion comes and goes. And, um, and there's some, seems like there's some sort of built-in delusions in our human minds about um, wanting, craving for things to last forever when they're pleasant, getting attached. Notice, attachment. Um, or uh, in you know, painful phenomena, experience, difficult emotions, not being impermanent enough. And even when a really, how many times have you been in a really difficult emotional place and you feel like this is going to last forever? Even though you can reflect and be like, nothing has ever lasted forever. And no matter how much my heart has been broken or how much pain I've been in, it's always passed. But this one feels so permanent. It feels like it's never going to change. Like it's just going to stay or maybe get worse and worse. So very central in Buddhism is the encouragement, the uh, practice of turning towards the truth of impermanence and, and understanding it and to come, I guess, so much of our practice is, can I live in harmony with constant change? Can I learn to accept the arising and passing of people, of experiences, of my own mind states and emotions and, and the constant changing nature of these bodies? This physical form that is subject to sickness and aging and death and permanence. So not just theoretically everything changes, but directly knowing this body is changing. And I don't know what the statistic is, but there is some, um, like when you're born, you're uh, kind of growing and you're, you're aging and you're developing until a certain age. And it's pretty young. I don't know if anybody knows. It's like like 17 or something like that. And then you're starting to decay. You know, the whole aging process is, an, is a process of decaying. Like we're just dying right here on the bone. It's like dry aged meat. You're just here dying. You're still alive, but you're decaying. From a, Does anybody know the age? I think it's under 20. Like you're growing and, you know, like your body's kind of developing, developing, developing till you're like 17 or 20 or whatever it is. And then the rest of your life, you're decaying. It's wild to think about. You know it. You already know it. It's impermanence. Like, you know, you only are going up the process. The rest of the time you're going down. It's, it's a downhill towards the grave, towards death. And however long life lasts. And um, so the Buddha encourages us to uh, become intimate with death, to turn towards it rather than denying it and avoiding it and, you know, getting all weird and freaked out. You know, Halloween, people are skeletons. Ooh, death is so scary. Rather than like, oh, nope, I'm totally familiar, intimate, connected with my own impermanence and the impermanence of everyone that I love. 
there's a meditation that we're about to do um, where the phrase, and it's, it's for you, it's for your relationship to your body decaying and dying. And there's a phrase in it that says something like, I'm not exempt from this fate. And so that's true for us, but also we can look at each other and say, uh, you're not exempt from this fate and you're not exempt from this fate. Nobody's exempt from sickness, aging, and death. It's the reality that we have taken birth into, this impermanent realm of existence. And I, I chose this meditation for tonight because it's a little bit spooky Halloween death. Um, but the Buddha was pretty graphic. He talks about, you know, visualizing uh, bodies being eaten by maggots and, you know, rotting and, and then reflecting on that in your meditation saying like, and I'm not exempt from this fate. This is the reality of what happens to these bodies and more and more familiarizing ourselves and becoming um, free from fear of it and living in acceptance of it. Which, you know, if it's your first time doing something like this, might not feel like, but if you do it regularly, if you keep it as part of your meditative practice, there's so much freedom in not being afraid to die and accepting death and, and accepting the loss uh, of other people's. Grief is healthy. You know, there is a healthy sense. Uh, when I say accepting, I don't mean that it's you're so like dismissive of it. Uh, still sadness. Sadness is a healthy emotion. Even sometimes a little bit of fear is healthy. Grief is healthy. But uh, there's a level of fear that's unhealthy and not necessary. There's a level of grief when you're really attached, where you're prolonging suffering about impermanence that's just unnecessary. And these practices can bring us into a healthy ability to grieve and to see the reality of our impermanence and, and not suffer unnecessarily. I mean, the whole Buddhist teaching is it's possible to not experience the unnecessary levels of suffering in life. It's possible. You'll still have pain. You'll still have sickness and aging and death, but you don't need to suffer about it. You'll still have sadness, still have grief, but you don't need to make it worse by clinging to impermanence. You don't need to make it worse by rejecting and denying death. There's a term, traditional term, that doesn't so much fit for us in our culture, but he talks about the, the traditional instruction is, imagine a body thrown onto a charnel ground. You even know what a charnel ground is? sounds like, it, right? It's like a barbecue or something. <laughs> charnel. Charnel ground is the term for if we, uh, when people died, kind of threw them into a, a cemetery without burying them and just let the, the elements, um, let the body decay. Uh, in traditional Indian society, for the most part, they burn bodies. It's a crema cremation, uh, a kind of na nature-based creation where you build a big funeral pyre with wood, you put the body on it, you burn the body. But if you don't have the money, 
for the wood, they just throw your body in the field and let it decay. They don't bury. It's not a burying culture like ours. You know, we, we've, um, most, most of us probably assumption, but probably true for most of us have been raised in this culture where death is, you know, you put makeup on the bodies, you, you pump them full of preservatives. We want the body to last. What a fucking strange <laughs> tradition that is. Somebody dies and let's pump them full of uh, formaldehyde preservatives so that the body decays less slowly in a airtight. And this is, you know, this, right? It's total, it's Christianity. I, I, at one point I was like, why the fuck do we do that? And I was a little bit surprised that it's because of the, um, what's it called in Christianity when they rise from the dead? Not zombies, but... <laughs> The, resur- the resurrection that, that, you know, that there's some like, well, at some point, like you're, you're going to, your whole body is going to be called to heaven. So it better be pretty preserved, something like that. And it's just this total denial of impermanence and decay and death and not just let the bodies rot. Some of you've done, there's this practice that my father created and I've led a few times. It's called a year to live. And part of the, and it's imagining you could consider doing this. It's imagining that you all got a terminal diagnosis tonight and you have one year to live and you just know next Halloween, that's it, lights out. You got a year. And part of that process is deciding uh, how you're going to dispose of your body when you die. I don't know if anybody talked about that, how you feel about death. That'd be a, another interesting icebreaker. What do you, how are you going to dispose of your corpse? <laughs> You're not going to be here, but if you had to, you know, choose, how do you want them to dispose of your corpse? You want to be pumped full of that shit? You want to open casket so everyone could be like, yeah, looks looking pretty good. <laughs> Grandma just looks like she's asleep. I remember when I did it, I was on some real good hippie shit, and I was like, I want them to bury my box, bury my um, body in like a, you know, just without a box and then plant a tree so that my corpse can feed the earth. Right? It's like plant an avocado tree on top of my corpse and my rotting flesh can be, you know, good manure fucking. (laughs) But it's actually a better idea. Like why are we burning and burying and like, Decaying flesh is good fertilizer. We should just be like chopping people up and planting them in Ventura <laughs> under the strawberry fields. You know, like the strawberries would be delicious. <laughs> well, human flesh strawberries. Right? It's gross. Even just like, but that's what we are. We're meat and we decay. And rather than burning and fucking up the atmosphere with the unnecessary fires or burying and airtight caskets that take hundreds of years instead of dozens of years to decay. So I didn't set up chairs tonight because um, I would like to invite you to lay down, take the corpse pose, because you're going to about to die. 
you're going to reflect on death. So find some room, lay down, you can use the cushions. There's a few more cushions if people came in, if you want to use a pillow, you know, you can. A um, couple of blankets there. You can stay in a chair if you want to, but if you, if you want to spread out, lay down, it's a little bit easier to get the sense of like corpse laying down. At home, if you can, find a place to to lay down if there's somewhere in the room that you're at that you can lay down or... <laughs> corpses hands by your side traditionally like in yoga they say turn your palms up but whatever feels comfortable to you but do it in a way that is effortless hands to your side it takes a little uh, up feels like it takes a little bit of um effort hands down whatever just so that you don't feel like you need to put any tension in your body, just let the, as though you had no tension to give, just the corpse. If you couldn't tighten your muscles because your heart had stopped and you had no tension left in you. And when you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed and and then stop breathing whenever you... Just feel this body that's so much alive. Feel the breath, feel the sensations. Scan your attention through this body. What what makes you know that you're alive right now? What proof do you have of life in this body, in this moment? And begin to imagine a corpse laid out on a charnel ground, one or two or three days dead, swollen up, blue, black in color, full of corruption. And regard your own body This body of mine also has this nature, has this destiny, and cannot escape it.
when your mind wanders to the future or the past, come back to this visualization. See a corpse. Say to yourself, this body of mine also has this nature, this destiny, and cannot escape it. And progressing as though we were looking at a corpse thrown on a charnel ground that had been eaten by crows and hawks and vultures. Body that had been ravaged by dogs, jackals, or devoured by all kinds of worms. Imagine this body left out in the elements the animals come to devour, to ravage, to eat the flesh, the worms, the maggots. Reflecting again, regarding your own body, this body of mine, so very much alive right now, also has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. Be creative with the decay, the dismemberment. The corpse on the charnel ground. progressing to a framework of bones, flesh hanging from it, splattered with blood held together by sinews.
visualizing this process of decay. The four elements dispersing the blood, the air gone, the flesh eaten, disintegrated, rotted. It's the nature of this body, this body of mind also has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. All of the flesh stripped away, just a framework of bones. Without flesh and blood, still held, to, held together by the sinews, the cartilage. Just imagine a skeleton about your size without any of the flesh around it. The skull, the arms, hands, feet, pelvis. The empty rib cage. And reflecting to ourselves, this body of mind also has this nature, has this destiny. We cannot escape it.
further seeing just bones disconnected and scattered in all directions. Here a bone of the hand, there a bone of the foot, there a shin bone, a thigh bone, a pelvis, the spine, the skull. Disconnected, scattered regarding your own body. This body of mine also has this nature, has this destiny. You cannot escape it. Imagine the bones bleached, falling apart, resembling shells. Someone has come around and swept them up and heaped them together after the lapse of years. As the bones weather and crumble to dust. a complete impermanence of the body. Feeling this body so much alive in this moment. Feeling the impermanence of each breath arising and passing. Sensations, emotions, mind states. Coming and going. We remind ourselves of the reality this body subject to sickness, not exempt from illnesses, from injuries. This body subject to aging, decaying on the bone right now, 
gravity affecting our skin, our organs, our bones. Not exempt from aging. Subject to death. Ultimate impermanence of this incarnation. A corpse decaying. Lifeless. Separated from everything that we're attached to, that we hold dear, that we love. The Buddha teaches that our only true possession in this lifetime are our actions, our karma. Only thing that come with us when we die is the karmic momentum we've created in this lifetime. Taking your time, opening your eyes, making sure you're still breathing. I don't fully know the historical significance of Halloween and uh, Day of the Dead and All Hallows Eve and uh, seems, seems pretty Judeo-Christian in origin. But Buddhism also has this encouragement to, to reflect on death and to honor death and um, as Christianity, I mean, as Buddhism uh, spread throughout Asia, um, it came into contact with um, a lot of cultures that were um, practicing filial piety, uh, which is kind of what Day of the Dead is, where it's like a worship of your ancestors, uh, a feeling of piety to to your to your ancestors, and a um, if you travel in Thailand or in Burma, they'll have like spirit 
houses for the spirits of the land of, the, of your ancestors. If in, in China, there'll be shrines to the ancestors and mixed with Buddhism and this reflection on death and, and that there's more to a lifetime than just the physical presence, but the karma created in a lifetime and how it's passed on to our children or to the people that knew us or... Um, is really interesting piece. So this whole reflection that I gave you tonight on death is right out of the first foundation of mindfulness. It's in the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. This is it's one of the problems with, you know, what our culture has done and turned mindfulness just into breathing techniques, uh, which is great. You know, the first, the, the first teaching in mindfulness is pay attention to your breath. But then the, the last teaching in the first foundation of mindfulness is pay attention to death. And, you know, you don't hear that much on the mindfulness apps. <laughs> um, it hasn't really been incorporated in the secularization of mindfulness in our culture. And just after that, at the end of the foundation, there's this uh, refrain, the Buddha says, thus one dwells in contemplation of the body, either regarding one's own body or the body of others, pers other persons, or to both. And so all of the, which is interesting if you think of like contemplation of mindfulness of someone else's breath, because right, it's mindfulness of the breath, of the body, of the impermanence of the body, but it makes a lot of sense for this corpse meditation, like, yep, we're thinking about our own death and coming into acceptance of that, and, but also each other. So that when our parents die, when our friends die, when our, whoever dies, there's a bit more acceptance of like, yeah, I've been meditating on your death for years. I've been seeing you as a corpse. You're, you've been dead to me for a long time. So that when it does happen, there's much more of a sense of like, I, I, I understand that this is natural. And I'm, I grieve it and I feel sad and all of that, but I understand that this isn't, um, I don't know, there's this Western medical term of like when somebody dies where it's like we lost them or like we failed or that somehow death is like a failure or like there's something um shouldn't happen right like there's a cultural thing of like people shouldn't die like but we know how ridiculous that sounds to say out loud but it's still there's this feeling of like oh they were too young <laughs> or we're only 92 <laughs> could have had a couple more good years in them. I mean, maybe when they're people are die when they're older, it's a little easier. You're like, I'm fucking 92. Of course they died. But if they're 60 or 40 or 30 or not 90 something, then there's a feeling of like, what a tragedy rather than, of course, naturally, we're in these impermanent bodies and they just don't last sickness aging death i mean of course there's all of the like you know my friend that died this week overdose there's all of these unnecessarily death, deaths around overdose around suicide around murders which do feel a bit more tragic of like hey that wasn't like a natural disease or you know something that happened but um but it happened and, and it's part of taking birth in this there's the not that funny joke that you've probably heard about the um, 
Buddhist coroner who lost his job or her job, their job, um, because on every toe tag uh, for the cause of death, they were writing birth. <laughs> Not that funny, but true. Kind of a good dad joke. I'm, 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 a, I'm a middle-aged dad. Cause of birth, cause of death birth cause of birth sex but cause of <laughs> cause of death birth contemplating our own body or other people's bodies behold how the body arises and passes away the arising and passing away or knowing with clear comprehension and awareness a body is here to the extent necessary for knowledge and mindfulness, and one lives independent, unattached to anything in the world. Thus does the disciple dwell in contemplation of the body. So this is the goal, right? Here's the phrase. Here's where we're, you want to get to. If you want to be free from suffering, you want to take this Buddhist path to fruition. To the extent knowledge, uh, to the extent necessary for knowledge and mindfulness, tend to live independently unattached to anything in the world. Does it sound good? You want to be unattached to anything in the world? I bet most people are like, no, that sounds terrible. It sounds lonely. But it's because of our, I think it's because of our misconception of what attachment means. Uh, it doesn't say disconnected. Um, it says unattached. So, the way that I hear that goal of, of the Buddhist path of mindfulness is can we live completely, I would even say passionately connected to life, totally engaged in feeling all of it without clinging to any of it. Because sometimes unattached feels like this separate from, rather than unattached, which is in the midst of totally passionately experiencing it without trying to cling or control the process. That makes sense? Unattached, totally connected, not disconnected at all. There's this other piece that I never teach, but you know, it's in the, it's also here in the first foundation where um, there's a teaching that the Buddha was giving to the celibate. So I never teach it because we're not a celibate community, but he was encouraging his uh, students to reflect on how disgusting and loathsome the human body is as an antidote to lust. He's like, you're lusting after that corpse that's full of piss and shit and blood. You want to fuck that? Just look a little bit deeper. It's filled with impurities and just disgusting smells and bile. And that's what makes you horny. <laughs> Reflect on how disgusting the body actually is. It's like a sack of pus and poop and shit and piss and bile and phlegm. You still horny? Some people are like, yeah, <laughs> right up my kink. 
he said, reflect on the body the way that a, um, in the four elements, he said, like a butcher. Some of the vegetarians aren't going to like this analogy, but he says, uh, when a butcher, butcher rears a cow, brings it to the place of slaughter, binds it to a post, makes it stand up, slaughters it and looks at the slaughtered cow. During all of that time, he still has the notion cow. But when he has cut up and slaughtered the cow, divided it into pieces and sits down uh, near it to sell the meat, the notion cow ceases in his mind and the notion meat arises. He does not think he is selling a cow or that people are buying a cow, but that it is meat that is sold and bought. Similarly, in an ignorant worldling like us, whether a monk or a lay person, the concept being a man, a personality, a woman, etc., will not cease until we have mentally dissected this body of ours as it stands and moves and contemplated it according to its component elements, the four elements, rather than being so identified with our gender or our race or our, of saying like, this is just a body. It's a body. On the relative level, absolutely. Gender identity, racial identity, cultural, subcultural, socioeconomic status, all of that stuff on the relative level, true. But ultimately, which is the conversation that Buddhism's having, none of it's true. It's just a body, a human form. Mentally dissected this body of ours as it stands and moves, contemplated according to the elements. And when we've done so, the notion personality, the notion I am will disappear. And the mind will become firmly established in understanding that all that's really going on here is the four elements. Just air, each breath. Just earth and the bones, just water, this body, which is 70 something percent water. Heat element. Four elements walking in this gender, in this race, in this socioeconomic situation, but just four elements. It's the interconnected truth for all of us. It's said that. Um, if you practice just the first, founda first foundation of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the breath, the body, the 32 parts of the body, the loathsomeness of the body, the four elements and the corpse meditation, that you will develop 10 magical powers. Again, something I don't usually teach, but it's Halloween and you guys are witches and get your magical powers. 10 blessings. The first one, is that once the contemplation of the body is practiced, developed, often repeated, and has become one's habit, one's foundation is firmly established, strengthened, and perfected, the discipline may expect 10 blessings. Number one, the blessing over delight and discontent one has mastered. One does not follow 
does not allow themselves to become overcome by discontent. They subdue it as soon as it arises. So no more unhappiness, discontent, being, being able to be at ease in the midst of whatever's happening, however unacceptable it feels, subduing discontent. Number two, one conquers fear and anxiety, does not allow themselves to be overcome by fear and anxiety. They subdue them as soon as they arise. Now, I like that both of these say as soon as they arise, because it doesn't say you're going to meditate away fear and anxiety. It doesn't say you're going to meditate away the feeling of discontent. It says it's going to arise, but your mindfulness will be so strong that you'll be able to meet it with a wise antidote to subdue it with wisdom. It'll still come. You still get anxious. But when anxiety arises, rather than incarnating it into, I'm so fucking scared, just, oh, fear is here. Let me accept it. Let me meet it with some compassion. Subduing it as it arises. Number three. One can endure cold and heat, hunger and thirst, wind and sun, and attack by gadflies, mosquitoes, or reptiles. Patiently, one endures wicked and malicious speech, as well as bodily pains that befall them. Though they be piercing, sharp, bitter, unpleasant, disagreeable, and even dangerous to life. So the more mindful you are, the more like, you know, mosquitoes. What's a gadfly? I don't know, like a, it's like a noceum biting, some, some kind of biting insect. How much do you suffer about pain? The more we sit in meditation, contemplate the body, the more acceptance we come into. Like, yep, the body hurts sometimes. I don't have to suffer about it. I have a nervous system. I experience pain. Okay, now it gets psychic. No, number four, the four absorptions, which purify the mind and bestow happiness. Even here, these one may enjoy at will without difficulty, without effort. So it's saying a deep enough first foundation of mindfulness meditation will lead to extreme levels of concentration, which, which produce joy, which free us from the hindrances of doubt and and you can temporarily meditate yourself into a state of joy and, and you can enjoy it. Number five, you will enjoy different magical powers. Oh, it doesn't say what the magical powers are. Number six, with the heavenly ear, the purified superhuman may hear both kinds of sound, the heavenly, the earthly, the distant, and the near. This is why I never teach this shit because it gets a little crazy <laughs> number seven with the mind they will obtain insight into the heart of other beings other persons so it's literally saying you can meditate yourself into being a psychic or you just be like oh yep i know what's going on in your heart yeah i don't even want that one <laughs> number eight they may obtain remembrances of previous births so actually meditating yourself into remembering your own past incarnations. I mean, you can go, you know, to lots of places down the street and, you know, some people will tell you that they'll tell you about your past births. And I feel pretty skeptical of it. But when I realized that it's in Buddhism and the Buddha talked about his own past incarnations, 
I feel like, you know, it seems like most of the psychics that you're, you know, paying to tell you about your past lives to me seem like charlatans, you know, 90% of the time. But it's one of the Buddhist teachings that you can become so mindful that you can recollect past births. Possible. Still skeptical personally. Number nine, with the heavenly eye, purified and superhuman, one may see beings vanish and reappear, the base and the noble, the beautiful and the ugly, the happy and the unfortunate. He may preserve how beings are born according to their deeds. So this is saying, and it's one of the things that they said about the Buddha, is that um, you could actually see other people's like, oh, in a past life, like it's what the fortune tellers are telling you they're doing. Like, oh, in a past life, you were like this, and your karma brought you to this, or, you know, you were... Um, and because of the way you're behaving in this life, your next life is going to be like this, according to deeds, according to karma. Number 10, through the cessation of passions, one comes to know for themselves, even in this life, the stainless deliverance of mind, the deliverance through wisdom. So ultimately, from my perspective, that's what that's the real goal, not magical powers, not heavenly ear, heavenly eye, or, but the deliverance from the causes of suffering, the wisdom that everything's impermanent, subject to sickness, aging, death, that we no longer suffer about it, delivered from the experience of suffering, we still experience life. The Buddha continued to experience all kinds of difficulties, drama in, in, their, in the community, uh, all of the you know, suffering of the culture that he was living in, but delivered from suffering about it, responding with wisdom, with compassion to the reality of the situation. All right, part two is um, first death, our own death, and then I promised you a serial killer. So there's one serial killer in the life of the Buddha. Um, and his, his name was Anguli Mala. And Ngulimala was, the word, the Indian Pali term Anguli means finger. And uh, mala is, you know, like the beads, the uh, bracelets, the necklaces, the 108 beads that like really spiritual people wear at the yoga center. <laughs> It's a traditional thing in Buddhism and Hinduism, 108 is a traditional number and of prayers that you would do or practices that you would do. And this guy was the finger, finger necklace, Angulimala, finger necklace bandit. And it was a contemporary in, in the time of the Buddha. And he had murdered 107 people. And he was, try, he was trying to make uh, a, a necklace of 108 fingers of his victims. He was murdering, chopping their finger off, and doing some arts and crafts, <laughs> turning it into a necklace.
there's different backstories of, you know, cause like, well, part of the, I think part of the question for him and maybe for all serial killers, I don't know how many of you watched like the Dahmer thing recently, or my partner Lily was just watching the good nurse about that nurse that killed hundreds of patients and hospitals that was going around hospital to hospital and just killing patients or there's I think I don't know it seems like there's a pretty big fascination with serial killers and uh, like psychologically like why 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 do people what happens in someone's life to get make them get that blood thirst and that kind of uh, wanting to just randomly murder people one of the backstories that I heard for Angulimala, it was that before becoming a serial killer, he was a, a serious meditation student. And um, at a young age had entered an ashram in the Hindu Indian tradition and had a guru and was doing all of the yoga and all of the meditation and all of the prayers and, and was a very sincere disciple and was a skilled meditator and yogi and, um, and was seeking freedom, was seeking enlightenment. And that uh, his guru, he became very close with his guru. And, and this is kind of more like in the Vedic, what we would call Hinduism, pre-Buddhism, uh, Indian spirituality. Became very close with his guru and, and, and um, like almost like the assistant to the guru. And, and became close to the guru's family and the guru's uh, wife. And um, at some point, some of the other students got jealous of uh, the access that he had to the guru and the um, connection, um, you know, and you know, that community jealousy stuff that can happen, that comparing and uh, competition. And, and so they started to uh, gossip that maybe and I forget what, he did have a name before he became the finger necklace bandit, Nguli. But we'll just call him Nguli, little Nguli. Um, so they started to gossip that maybe uh, he was having an affair with the guru's wife. And, um, and the guru started to see like, oh, they are quite close. And, um, you know, he started, the, the guru started to get jealous and, and have that attachment and that jealousy and that rage and... So in order to get rid of little Nguli, he said, I have a um, very advanced spiritual practice for you. He said, you know, I've been teaching you about the fact that we're not these bodies. I've been teaching you about, um, you know, that, that sometimes we sacrifice, uh, you know, in the Hindu tradition, um, they sacrifice animals, they sacrifice goats to Kali, Kali and Shiva, the gods and goddesses of, of destruction and animal sacrifices is a common thing back then to this day. I remember the first time I was in India in my twenties and I went to a Kali temple and they were murdering goats right there in front. Like, and I was like, this is so fucking metal. This, I was a vegan at the time. I was super offended, but I was like, this is, this is Hinduism. Wow. You guys just sacrifice animals to the gods. This is wild. But maybe the context of the, the guru and this kind of Hindu Kali Shiva murder cult was like, you know, not only this advanced practice, not only do we need, sometimes we need to sacrifice humans. You know, goats are sentient beings, humans, sentient beings. It's like, I have this advanced practice. I need you to go out and murder 
108 humans and bring me back a mala of 108 fingers. So I don't know, you know, of course, all of this is probably myth, but it's an interesting motivation rather than like a deranged psychopath. I would hear it more as like a really naive spiritual student that would actually do what your teacher told you, even if they told you to do something that didn't make sense. So I, I also like to hear it as that sort of like, be careful of gurus, beware of teachers that have jealousy, that have ulterior motives, that have greed, that have hatred, that might tell you, you know, if they tell you to do something that doesn't fit with your wisdom, with your ethics, with what you knew to be true, they, you know, if anybody tells you to go murder people, <laughs> you're in the wrong cult, join a different cult. So anyways, Angulimala goes out and is hesitant, but he kills somebody and gets the finger and then he kills another person and another person and another person. And it said that the more he killed that there was actually, you know, like that list of magical powers that you can get from meditation. It was saying that he got more and more magical powers from murder, the bloodlust, that he developed the ability to uh, run faster than horses. And then he got like superhuman speed, you know? So now he's not only, it's like a superhero, you know, flash serial killer. So like, it was hard to escape him because then, you know, pretty soon they were like, well, fucking there's this murderer in Venice, like stay out of Venice. But like, if you were even close, he could run you down. And he'd almost completed it. And um, it arose in Nguli's Mala's mind. Well, I've killed everyone else and now everyone's hiding from me. But I bet if I went home to visit mom, she wouldn't hide from me because she's my mom and I could kill her and she could be my last finger. So he goes, he's just about to head over to mom's house to murder mom, get her finger to complete the necklace. And the Buddha's in the neighborhood, right? Guli Mall is down here in Venice, but you know, the Buddha's over here in Culver City. And uh, the Buddha in his heavenly knowing mind says, I better go uh, intervene because there's no karma worse than killing mom. Killing is bad anyways, but you kill your mom, you're really fucked. I'm gonna go see if I can have a talk with this young man. So the Buddha, cruises down to Abbot Kinney where Angulamala is murdering and finds him. And Angulimala sees him and starts to run after the Buddha. And the Buddha's doing, you know how the Buddha does like slow, like Thich Nhat Hanh zombie walking. Just like real mellow vibes. But for some reason, again, mythological story, the way this goes, uh, Angulimala can't close the gap. And the Buddha's just walking mindfully and Gulimala's running as fast as he can, but there's this distance that just stays between them, this sort of magical distance. And at one point, Gulimala just gets really frustrated and he's, you know, they're almost to the beach. And he screams at the Buddha, he says, 
stop. And then the Buddha stops and slowly turns as Buddhas do. And all of a sudden they're face to face, like right here, like in striking distance. And the Buddha turns to Angulimala and he said, I stopped a very long time ago. Are you ready to stop? And Angulimala has a moment of clarity, insight, transformative, his grief of his ignorance and his confusion in the face of the Buddha washes over him. And he says, I want to stop. Can you teach me how? And he goes down onto his knees and he bows three times to the Buddha. And he says, please accept me as a student. I've been so confused. I've just been seeking liberation. And I was sent on this insane practice. And uh, is it possible for me to have redemption? Is it possible for me to purify the karma of all of this murder all of this harm, all of this ignorance that I've created in my life? Is it possible for someone like me to heal, to awaken? And the Buddha says, yes, I'll accept you as a monk. I'll accept you as a student and you can come and live with us and you can um, learn to heal. And um, and Angulimala lives with the Buddha shaves his head, gets the robes, gets rid of the fingers. I don't know what they do with the fingers, but. It's said that part of the story is that the, you know, local government, the, you know, LAPD's after him, the King's army is after him. And at some point uh, they come to the Buddha and they say, you know, there's, there's a murderer around here and be careful. and. Um, but now Angulimala is a monk and he's, you know, got his shaved head and he's in his orange robes and he's, and uh, they said, you know, we're going to find him, we're going to kill him. And the Buddha says to the, to the cops, he said, well, what if he'd become one of my students and was living under my way? Uh, would you spare him? And they, and they said, well, I guess, you know, if, if the serial killer's over it against the stream, we'll let him. <laughs> We'll give them a pass if they're, you know, over there. Uh, if they're becoming a Buddhist, then they're going to take responsibility for their karma. And we'll give them a pass. And so then, you know, the Buddha says, well, this is Angulimala right here. And, the, you know. One of the interesting things about this story is that then... Uh, Angulimala lives with the Buddha for the rest of his life, but is attacked regularly by people when they're like out on alms rounds, people attack him because they know that guy killed my cousin and or my mom or my brother or my sister or my child or whatever. So he, he gets attacked, he gets beaten. Um, Nobody murders him, but he does get physically harmed a lot. It's also said that his karma uh, was such that if anything bad could happen, it did happen. That um, if he was walking past a window and a potted plant just happened to fall, not like actually thrown on him, but it would just fall on his head. Uh, or somebody was throwing a stick at a dog and it missed the dog and it would hit him. So not only did people intentionally harm him, 
but also just accident prone. You know, the karma of all of those murders were like all kinds of pain was coming his way for the rest of his life. And sometimes after he'd been beaten or something terrible had happened to him, he'd go to the Buddha and he would say, you know, I'm living nonviolence. I'm living the precepts, the celibacy. I'm meditating every day. I'm doing everything and I'm just getting my ass kicked left and right. And it's so painful to be alive. And I'm not sure if I should continue to be alive or, or what, what, what I should do. Um, the guilt, the shame, all of that, it's so difficult to live with. Is it really worth it for someone like me to continue this path? Is it really possible for someone like me with this kind of karma to become liberated? And the Buddha would just um, always say to him, uh, it is your karma, all of this bad shit that's happening to you um, because of all the bad shit that you did in your lifetime. And you have to bear it. And when people abuse you, you know, even one of those promises, you know, was if you're mindful, you'd be able to bear abuse. You'd be able to bear harsh words, harsh actions, attacks without taking it too personally, without you know, we're going to be a little bit careful of this kind of teaching. Um, also, healthy boundaries and, you know, not, not becoming, uh, you know, stuck in, in uh, avoidable situations. But when it's unavoidable, that we actually have the ability to bear it. And at the end of Angulimala's life, he became an arahant, a fully enlightened being the serial killer, finger bandit, necklace, finger necklace bandit, became a Buddha, became a fully enlightened. And maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But the archetype here is that no matter how your karma is, I don't know if any of you have ever felt like, you know, I think I'm fucked. I think that my karma is too bad to get free, to have redemption, to, you know, uh, completely become free from suffering. I think I'm supposed to continue to feel shame and guilt and everything for the rest of my life. And part of this story is just that archetype of that no matter what you've done, it's not as bad as what that motherfucker did. And he got free. And if he can, we can. Anybody can get free, no matter what you've done, if you take full responsibility for it and you change. And terrible shit might still happen to you as the karma of your past actions. And you can bear it. And just because you got sober doesn't mean you get a total pass on all that terrible shit. Just because you came, became a Buddhist doesn't mean you get a pass you still have the karma. We still have the karma of our actions. So you're gonna die any day now? Some point in this lifetime, you're gonna die. Everybody you love is gonna die. That's the truth. The good news is you can get free from suffering. 
in this lifetime through your own actions, train your mind, live in harmony with impermanence, and um, death will become natural, beautiful, part of life, not something to be terrified of or but to accept this whole death reflection corpse reflection some of it's about the big picture about you know impermanence some of it's this trick to help us enjoy present time life like i'm not dead right now i'm here i could die any minute but i'm here in this conversation in this relationship in this experience of life the preciousness of life by acknowledging the uncertainty about life rather than it's uncertain so i'm gonna it's uncertain so really enjoy it really fully be all in to the experience because you don't know how long it's gonna last statistically about 78 years on average but we'll see most of you will live to be in your mid 70s early 80s some of you aren't going to make it to 50 or 60 and we have this opportunity to live as fully and purify our karma as much as we can in this lifetime through kindness through generosity through forgiveness here and now rather than waiting for later and when some bad shit happens consider the possibility of uh seeing it as karmic purification this is easier for those of us like myself who've done some terrible shit in our lives. So then when terrible shit happens, you can be like, yeah, probably created that shit for myself. <laughs> this is so much harder for those of you who've lived a pretty, you know, wholesome life. And you're like, I didn't do shit, but bad shit keeps happening to me. And this is where like reincarnation, like, well, who knows what kind of a douchebag you were in your last life. <laughs> if that's true that's how buddhism makes sense of it any comments or questions before we end tonight about death or serial killers or redemption awakening No good. All right. Happy Halloween. Okay, one. We got one. Would you say that your awareness about the yeah, we're all born to feel more fearless? Because you know, any day. Um. I have a sort of an easy yes, but then, cause you're asking me personally, right? Not just like for people, for me, for me personally, it's a little bit hard for me to. What was it? 
the oh the question was um because of the reflection on death and worm food and am i personally a little um more fearless less fearful um because we could die at any moment and um it's it's hard for me to know actually how much of my i don't experience a lot of fear about death but i also have a history of suicidal ideation and a sort of death uh, you know, like death to me from a very young age seemed like a um, uh, pleasant escape. I'm not talking about fear of death. I'm talking about fearlessness in your life. Yeah, but I feel like um, I feel like fear always comes back to death. All of the stuff and that we're afraid of in our life, if you start unpacking it. Why am I afraid of this? Oh, because it might hurt. And if it hurts enough, it might kill me. Like, if you really unpack what you're afraid of, like, do it. Like, ask yourself, why am I afraid of this or that? And be like, well, because it would be unpleasant. And if it was unpleasant enough, it would, you know, I'd be so alone. And if I was alone enough, I'd fucking die or whatever. You know, I'd be ostracized, I'd be rejected. I'd be, it always comes back to survival instinct. Fear, it feels like it's fueled by survival instinct. And sometimes it's death. Maybe that's the ultimate. Sometimes it's just fear of pain. I'm not very afraid of pain and I'm not very afraid of death, but that's not all because of my Buddhism practice. Some of that, like I had, um, is, is a neurotic response to the pain of my childhood was just like, this is too fucking painful. I'm just going to turn towards it. And especially death of like, what's the worst that can happen, death? That sounds like a relief. And then, you know, that has changed a lot in my life as in my practice and especially becoming a parent of like, oh, I actually want to exist. I want to be here. I want to be here with my children. I want to, you know, I can remember before I had children in the some teachers in my community being like, you know, we know you don't really care that much about existing, Noah but we need you to exist. My students and my kind of, and you know, like, please like be a little bit careful, like stop the wheelies because like the Sangha needs you. <laughs> so, and which didn't really work for me to feel, but once I had children, that attachment of children definitely shifted my own, like, I wanna be here for as long as possible. I, you know, and the kind of checking out early thing that I had the first half of my life really shifted. Um, because even as real is like, oh, that sounds good. But even like my pain, like the, a lot of pain for me ended pretty, I got sober young, the freedom of, of the practice, you know, in my twenties and thirties, but there was still that sort of like, but existence kind of overrated. <laughs> It has always been my mentality. And so it's not just some of it's my own neurotic stuff and not just Buddhism. Yeah. Ryan. How often do you suggest uh, death meditation or turning towards that as yeah. a practice? The question um, Ryan just asked was how often do I suggest the death or the turning towards it? Um, I've no, it's hard to say. I've never really integrated it into like a daily practice in my life. But what I've done is this um, couple of years uh, where I did the year to live practice. And I went to India and I sat at the charnel grounds and I hung out in the cemeteries and I dedicated a whole year 
three times over the last 30 years, there's been three years where I'm focusing on death for the whole year. So I do encourage you to do that at some point, you know, take a year where you're still doing your mindfulness and your loving kindness and your compassion, but forgiven, but, but uh, death becomes the investigation. I'm going to do the five remembrances every day. I'm going to meditate in the cemetery at least once a week. I'm going to, you know, do these practices and turn towards death for a longer period of time. It's the way that I've done it. You know, I've had three full years of death investigation, but, you know, one was 20 years ago and one was 10 years ago. And, you know, so it's like, everyone's maybe every decade do a year of you know i but that's been my practice you could just do, you know do it for 30 days see how that goes do you know do it every other day for six months like you get to decide investigate it like i've kind of just said like i'm going to do this year focusing on this um, my father's book year to live is interesting read it and and um, see if it resonates. There's a whole like month to month practice of how to turn towards death in that book as though you had one year to live. Kabuki. I have a question about, I don't know if it's a question, but um, I don't have suicidal ideation, but recently I had some friends who had people in their lives commit suicide. And, you know, there's death, which there's the arc of death and how you can die. And then there's the deaths that are just that much more challenging to make sense of. And as we've been sitting here today, I, I keep coming back to how do you make sense of suicide? I tend to make sense of it. Um, of just an, uh, you know, intolerance for the pain that one is experiencing and a craving to be free from that pain. And, um, you know, there's that, saying that is, is, is cheesy but true, which is like what a permanent solution to a temporary problem, you know, of kind of like, I don't want to be in this pain. And so I'm out, whether it's emotional or whatever it is. Now, um, you know, I talked about being suicidal in my early life, I'm not suicidal anymore. But, and I also lean towards, I don't have total belief in reincarnation, but the more I studied Buddhism, and started to lean towards the possibility that, um, you know, that fifth thing that I said in the meditation, that the only thing we take with us is our karma. If that is actually true, um, then suicide isn't even, you know, death isn't even much of a relief because you're bringing all of your karma with you. And so, yeah, you get out of this body, but you just trade it in for another existence, if that's true. And so that the possibility that that's true really shifted it for me. I know that's not really your question, but I, I tend to see, you know, when people kill themselves, it's just like, I just don't want to feel this pain anymore. And it's this uh, also almost always a belief that it's lights out and that death will be the end of it. 
But if karma and reincarnation are true, it's not a very practical solution because like, oh shit, I'm just going to have to take this into my next lifetime with me. So I might as well do whatever I can to heal here and now to get free from this pain, to forgive, to have compassion, to have wisdom here and now rather than ending it, cutting it short, ending up, you know, in another shitty adolescence, you know, next time. But people just don't want to feel pain, so they kill themselves. I want to thank you for tonight. And I think talking to this group of new friends here about how when I had walked in, uh, this was exactly the type of like punk rock meditation situation I needed. So I have a very low tolerance for text or views, healers, and shit like that. And, and I remember you, this, it was a quiet room, and you had a black flag t shirt on. And I just remember you just patted knuckles to neck. And everybody was quiet. You walked down the center of the room and you sat down and you're like, fucking ready. And that was the, your first words out of my I'm like, what the fuck? This is it. This is, this is, and this tonight was exactly uh, one of the reasons that I continue to, as long as I'm out, I, I come back because this is exactly what I need to hear tonight. And the weird thing that came up for me and this group of people is that I realized death, the idea of death, of me being gone, it's a lot harder. Now that I have a kid, one, two, it immediately goes three for me. It immediately goes to the people that I miss and I love and they're gone and that hole is always an open wound on some level. But it's it's something we don't talk about. It's something that's just not a natural part of like day-to-day existence. But um, this is really just more of a gratitude for you being here and doing this kind of thing. Just serial killers. This whole night's been awesome. <laughs> Halloween, death and serial killers. Thank you. Good to see you. Uh, we will end there. Sorry, Ian, I didn't have, I'm already over time, but I'll hang out if you want to chat after. Um, everyone's welcome to be here. It's never about the money. Everyone is welcome, whether they have money to donate or not. But we are a nonprofit organization. Technically, we're a church and we're supported by your generosity. Um, and uh, rent on the room is $3,500 a month. The employees that I have are another couple thousand dollars uh, a month. So, um, you know, dropping, you know, five or $10 here or there doesn't really support this. What really supports this is if you can become a monthly supporter and you can actually, um, you know, say, I'm gonna give money every month to help pay the bills here. If you feel moved to do that, please do. If you're just coming for a drop-in class, uh, whether you're on Zoom or in person, um, somebody pointed out to me that I've been asking for a 15 to $20 donation for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. And they're like, dude, fucking uh, inflation, you know? Like 20 years ago, you were asking for 15 bucks. It could probably be 25 or 30 now. I'm always a little hesitant to do it because I don't want anyone to feel like they don't have access. The only reason we don't charge is so that everyone has access. And that also it's um, good for you, your practice to take the opportunity to be generous and to not be like, well, I don't have to pay, so I'm not going to. You don't have to pay, but it's good for you and your karma and you know to voluntarily be generous rather than I have to pay in order to be there. So everybody's welcome. It's never about the money. Um, but also it's uh, not cheap to have, you know, pay a lease in 
Venice, California, and to support the employees and hopefully something being left to support me as a teacher. So uh, be as generous as, as you can. And um, the link um, for on do online donations are there. Tara, thank you for your help. She's at the desk most weeks. And thank you, Brian, he sets up the room. Um, I could use some volunteers if anybody wants to take a commitment to cleaning the bathrooms once in a while, if you don't have money, but you have time. Um, it's how this thing happens. So you can talk to me after if you'd like to do that. All right. Offering the merit outward in all directions, all the ghosts and ghouls, including the serial killers, everybody who's decaying on the bone right now, those dying, those being born, those out there trick-or-treating or the ones at home already overdosing on sugar. And um, may all beings in all realms benefit from our practice, from our discussion, from our commitment to awakening. May we get as free as possible in this life and together may we create a positive change on this planet. See you next time. Sorry for going over. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.